Before we begin this episode, please be aware that we discuss issues including mental health, racism and discrimination. Thank you. Welcome to the Meaning of Home podcast, where we discuss the complexities and connections between home and homelessness. I'm your host, Sarah Christou, and as always, with me is the podcast's producer, Dave Angel. We are doctoral researchers at Loughborough University, part of the Harnessing Opportunities for Meaningful Environments Centre for Doctoral Training, for short, the Home CDT. We are a cohort of seven PhD projects approaching concepts of home and homelessness through a creative lens to develop impactful new research. Every month we'll bring a new episode with a range of guests to provide commentary and conversation on different themes. In this episode, our theme is discrimination, where we'll be discussing the systemic and institutional failures experienced by black and minoritised groups in accessing housing. Today, we are delighted to be joined by Michaela Queensborough, our first returning guest, who is the Children and Young People Programme Manager at AVA, Against Violence and Abuse, and Amma Antwi Yaboa, Corporate Manager of Housing Solutions at Baber and Mid Suffolk District Council. Michaela is the former Ending Women's Homelessness Lead at Homeless Link and currently works in the women's sector. She is a PhD researcher exploring the duality of domestic abuse with reference to childhood and ethnicity. She continues to have a fervent interest in championing gender-informed approaches to end women's homelessness. Michaela is also an advisory board member at Grace Simba Community Village. Amma is a housing professional with 20 years of experience in the sector. She is currently the Corporate Manager Housing Solutions at Baber and Mid-Suffolk District Councils, covering homelessness, rough sleeping, strategic housing and private sector housing. In this role, Amma helps residents to sustain and attain settled accommodation. She is passionate about using data intelligence to develop and deliver services for people whilst making the best use of limited resources. She is also the Vice Chair of the Board of Trustees at the Renewal Programme, a charity that provides a range of community services in Newham in East London. Welcome Michaela and Amma to the Meaning of Home podcast. So we're discussing discrimination. Let's take a look at some research first. A policy paper recently published by the Centre for Homelessness Impact highlights how inequalities experienced by different ethnic groups across the UK contribute to higher rates of homelessness. The policy paper shows that black people are more than three times as likely to experience homelessness as white people in England. People of mixed race are almost twice as likely to be affected by homelessness in England. And Bangladeshi, black African, black other and Pakistani groups are more than twice as likely as white British people to experience housing disadvantage. Amma, can you tell us what is meant by housing disadvantage? I think for me, it's a situation where where people find it difficult to access adequate housing. And that is often due to different impacting factors such as overcrowding, housing conditions, you know, not also understanding the system, lack of social networks, 
and it's also down to affordability because you'll find that most ethnic minorities end up paying a higher proportion of their income towards their housing costs and often they're driven to the lower the lowest end of the market so you'll often find people in a shared room situation you know and you could find families in one room sharing in, in lived accommodation and it's it's just living in inadequate really poor housing conditions which impacts other attainment, you know, it affects the attainments for your children, it affects your well-being and your mental health as well. So all of these impact on other outcomes such as health as well and your well-being. So I think I think people underestimate how that disadvantage plays out. You know, if you're living in an overcrowded situation with family and trying to study for your GCSE exams, it impacts on the outcomes that you will achieve and attain in school and then your life outcomes as well. In that sense, that housing disadvantage is felt greater in BME communities, I find. I think there's some really interesting points there because it's essentially one type of disadvantage then compounds and adds to another and adds to another. Um, in particular, you mentioned about like a a lack of access to affordable housing and a higher proportion of um, income being spent on that. But then from even before that, there's lower rates of pay as well in terms of the work that's being done. And so this feeds into this kind of adding more and more multiple levels of disadvantage alongside that. Um, with that in mind, Michaela, how does um, structural racism then filter through access to housing and like UK housing policies and practice? So, yeah, super excited to be back here, part of this conversation, you know, addressing the proverbial elephant in the room, um, the elephant being systemic racism um, and just kind of unpicking the question, thinking about, you know, policies and procedures and, you know, how they are informed by an evidence base um, and how people from the global majority are often, you know, excluded from those conversations. They're not given a seat around the table, which results in policies and practices being designed for the majority, this, this one size fits all approach. Um, and I've spoken previously about, um, you know, good practice and good practice for who, you know, so whose voices have been a part of that decision making, um, you know, whose voices have been excluded. Um, so, so yeah, when we think about that thread, structural racism, yeah, filtering through the ecosystem, as we've heard already, how, you know, Amma has talked about how, how it permeates from housing and, and has this uh, uh, impact in, in other areas, education, health, criminal justice. It, it, it really has a profound impact. Policies kind of negating the specificities. So thinking about individuals who, who have no recourse to public funds and how, how policies are not, you know, in favour of, of meeting those basic needs, you know, how we've heard how income is being spent uh, disproportionately on basic need as housing how is there then surplus for for other essentials food clothing um and overcrowding um yeah it is a compounded issue that really requires an intersectional lens and you reminded me there michaela of you know the good practice for who and how services are designed for this average but this average being a fallacy because actually they're designed for white, cisgendered, heteronormative, able-bodied men. 
And so when that becomes seen as the average, then that template kind of gets replicated across services and practices as well. And as Michaela has said, housing is a universal need. It's a universal right, you know irrespective of how you've ended up here once you are here I think we need to treat people humanely you know I always believe in treating people how I would want to be treated and a guest in my house you treat them well with open arms I think that's one of those issues and I think it's also about when you said about seat around the table I think there's often a misnomer about the demographics of what makes up homelessness officers and housing officers in general and what you'll find is a lot of the officers tend to be from the global majority population who are making these decisions, who are often shaping policy. I've been around that table. A lot of my other colleagues have been around that table, shaping that policy and trying to. And there is a recognition that there are things that need to be done, especially about the level of priority you give to someone that's overcrowded. How does that play in allocations policy? What does that look like? What's impacting and using the data to look at what's impacting? So I think we're not there yet. Do not get me wrong. It is not perfect. And there's a lot more. We need to do a lot more of the data that we collect because we collect an awful lot of data on who is the service user. I know that as a, a woman who is who is black, I can empathise with that. I can look at our services from a different perspective and actually it informs how we do stuff and we should always be questioning it, asking the question, is this right? So for me, I can hear what Michaela is saying and some of that I agree with, but I think we are shifting in the right direction for me. Michaela, did you want to uh, respond? Yes, yeah, absolutely. I think it's bigger than at a local level is what I'm trying to describe um, from an ecological perspective, thinking about the corner system, thinking about legislation, thinking about where, um, you know, laws are um, written and enacted. So in terms of good practice at a local level, I don't dispute that that isn't happening. But in terms of how it has this ripple effect, as you you know, you illustrated, you know, we, 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 we're seeing people treated differently, um, despite the fact that they have a, a universal need for housing. So why is that? So just looking at, uh, as I say, that elephant in the room, that systemic racism, that discrimination that we know exists at the corner system um, and which our society is underpinned by. Um, that's that's where I, yeah, I, I'm describing those, those challenges, really, how that then filters down and impacts um, locally, yeah, in, in, in different ways. I think sometimes we can behave in ways that can be perceived as gatekeeping in the sense of some of our procedures, our practices, because there's always that alternative thing on your shoulder about the cost. The cost of temporary accommodation is skyrocketing, skyrocketing, you know, you, you the pressure's on, you're trying to relieve that end of it. But ultimately, I think at the end of the day, most services know you've got to accommodate people. But I've been in situations where you've got no temporary accommodation. Where are we placing these families? And you're trying your best to manage a very difficult situation. So you end up making decisions. And that's what it is. You make decisions of whose need is greatest. Who can we move around? Where can we place them and what is suitable? So I think that has to be taken into account as in because of the lack of supply of affordable housing, 
we're then making some very difficult choices with people that approach because actually for most people they want to help they come from a helping perspective but I think we need to sort of look at the resources that we have because it's a finite resource and that often colours people's access to it and I think it's that thing of when you have an indigenous population they already have an advantage because they know how the system works they have family members that have been through it they understand how to interpret policies allocation policies and work them to their advantage whereas I find with newer communities newly arrived communities and BME communities the social construct is slightly different they might not had anybody that have gone through the process before so they may be the first to, to navigate it so it's very a very different experience for them and often the way they would approach it will be slightly different and sometimes they won't be as forthcoming and I always tell people when you're making applications when you're approaching people you need to tell us everything and that not that may not be where they've come from culturally where they don't discuss things openly like that and don't give you all the information you need to make decisions so often you'll find that you're more likely to get review challenges from ethnic minority clients because they said well you haven't considered this but then it might come back but you didn't tell us that and they'll go well you never asked me for that but sometimes we've asked the question in a way that for them it didn't register that they needed to provide that information so I think there's a lot about hearing people what they're saying and really listening to what they're trying to tell you to get across Thank you. And I think it does sound, though, like the systems can tie themselves in knots, which makes it harder to access. And then coming back to our focus on discrimination, maybe the rights that you mentioned actually aren't applied equally. Kayla, uh, you wanted to respond to some of Amma's comments there. Yes, yes. Um, just around trauma-informed practice and just um again bringing in lived experience I was reading um a blog post before I came on um I had the privilege of working with Dion Williams um and she wrote a blog post for us when I was at Homeless Link um and just touching on that around being forthcoming and how culturally that's not necessarily something that people from the global majority are socialised to do and when we think about what trauma-informed practice means looking at that intergenerational uh, historical trauma um, and people's experiences of the system why would they be so forthcoming to kind of share parts of them pockets of them um, when you know having encounters where people haven't really honoured what's been shared. So um, appreciating, you know, the local authority has a really tough job. Um, but again, just in, in trauma-informed practice and honouring it, it really is about, yeah, you know, actions over words. And as you're saying, if if some ethnic minority people feel most comfortable coming in, it's perhaps is that sensing to see, you know, is there an authenticity behind th this need for help and support? So, yeah, I just thought that was really interesting when she was talking about how she's felt dehumatised and uh, re-traumatised in, in encounters. And, and, yeah, anybody that knows me knows that I will talk about trauma-informed practice to the days to the cows come home. I, I'd like to come back on that and say that I would say now majority of people that I work with and are in my services have got trauma-informed practice are baked into them now especially with the bringing in of I think people need to understand the context of everything because 
prior to the Homeless Reduction Act, when you made, say, a homelessness application, an officer had 33 days to make a decision. 33 days. And if somebody had rent arrears, that's not a lot of time to unpack someone's issue if that clock is ticking for 33 days. What the Homelessness Reduction Act has done is that we've got 112 days, depending on when you come in. So if you're coming when you're threatened with homelessness, we've got 56 days. So actually, that 112 days gives an officer time to build a relationship with the client. It also allows you to not think about, I've got to make a decision. You know, it's more about, yes, you might have had rent arrears, but what you do is you sort of put a pin in that rent arrears, you know it's there. What you're trying to do is is have that conversation and build that rapport with the with with your applicant or, or client to make sure they can. And your job as the officer is to draw that out of them, you know, and actually it's being able to spot the signs, the way people are answering, giving you certain questions and trying to dig a little deeper as I would hope to do because because from my own professional practice I have dealt with people who have been really really traumatized and it shows up in lots of different ways it's sometimes that angry client that kicks off at you and it's not and you need to understand something that's not about you that's because the way you said something or what you said has triggered them and it's taken them back to that place and you as a professional you need to take a step back and, and understand don't personalize it understand that this is somebody that's full of trauma and you need to give them space you know and sometimes I feel like it can be that case of if if a client kicks off they can get written off and people stop hearing them people stop seeing them seeing that this is somebody that's quite traumatized and actually let's come at this a different way you know let's and and to and I'd have to say this I have witnessed officers do some really great work with some of some of the most traumatized people where people haven't in the past been able to get anything out of them and it's actually taken that approach of actually being more concerned about the outcomes and trying to meet them halfway yes we've got a statutory framework to do an assessment in but there are different ways of doing that assessment and that has to be tailored to individual the individual needs of the person in front of you because as you said it not one size fits all and everyone will need something different I think um, while that's taking quite an individual focus on people's case by case basis, however, if we return actually to the wider issue, we see, you know, structural racism reasserts unequal treatment. And we see this across services, across systems as a legacy in the UK, uh, a political legacy of colonialism. And we see unequal treatment when trying to access adequate housing. Alongside this, unravelling a bit more of what has been mentioned, many people who experience losing their home experience trauma. So when black and minoritised groups face continual cycles of discrimination when trying to access housing and other services, this is re-traumatising, or it can be. And these cycles of discrimination are also perpetuated by intersecting structures of oppression, including gender, disability, immigration status, class and language barriers. Michaela, taking that into consideration, which is a lot, can you tell us more about how black and minoritised groups are being failed by the housing system? Again, we've 
explored it in different ways through uh, the conversation. Um, and just, again, want to centre um, Dion Williams's uh, experiences as a, a black woman experiencing homelessness um, and, and, and this piece of, of, of um, text um, is entitled Invisible, just again honouring and centering the black lived experience and um, referring back to Dion Williams blog post entitled um, Black Women Experiencing Homelessness Are Invisible. The circumstances that lead you to become homeless um, are not in silo thinking about a relationship breakdown whatever the other drivers were whether that was related to finance you know thinking then about employment what's going on in employment experiences of discrimination research tells us you know that that black people and people from the global majority are often passed up for promotion compared to their you know their white counterparts so these are parts of that lived experience and that's just one thread there thinking about employment um, and then the tensions of that unemployment or being in a, a low-income household, uh, your your accommodation at risk. You know, again, that's just one thread. When you think about the neighbourhood that you're living in, what kind of neighbourhood are you 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 in? We know research tells us that within London, you know, black people were more are more likely to be living in areas where there is poor air quality. Thinking about that lower end of the market, which we heard Emma talk about earlier. So you could be then living in an area that's, um, you know, there isn't the amenities there. I don't come from London. I live uh, in West Midlands. So, you know, when I think about um, some of the places I've lived, would I see the th foods that I eat as a, as a black mixed race woman? Would I be able to access them? So you're living in a neighbourhood where your your foods are um, and, and, and skincare products are, are widely available. Are you living in an area where, you know, there are um, encounters of racism? You know, are you living in an area where you don't see people that look like you? Um, again, that's just one strand. What are your experiences at school? What were your experiences at school? Did you encounter identification bias? Um, are you male? Are you female? Have you been stopped and searched by the police? Um, are you continually stopped and searched by the police? So all of these experiences with all these different systems, as you say, can be compounded. And when we think about, you know, where we're coming from, you know, were your parents from the Caribbean? Did your grandparents come here as part of Windrush? We see that Windrush generation are still, you know, fighting for compensation. Um, again, that's a, a legacy, as you say, this political legacy coming to the UK, experiencing that discrimination, not being able to access housing we can you know trace it back right then you know no blacks no irish no dogs and as i say this is the black lived experience some which i'm talking about here um if you want to bring ableism into that do you are you do you have undiagnosed um neurodiversity is it seen as behavioral have you been excluded from school you know has that alleged to be you know groomed and exploited you're on the pathway to criminal you know criminality contact with the criminal justice system we know you're more likely to be um you know imprisoned because of your ethnicity so these intersections as i say when you unpick them um and explore them and and as i say how that creates ongoing it's relentless you know this this relentless trauma that you can't just 
putting out of office on your skin colour for, for, for the day. You know, we can't, we carry this. This is something that we carry. And then when we experience homelessness, we come into contact with systems where there is, you know, racial bias. There is um, discrimination, as we've heard. There is unlawful gatekeeping. And, uh, you know, it's something that continues, the benefit system. So it's not something in isolation. It really is something that, as I say, at the root, is the legacy, as you say, I totally agree with you, Sarah, around uh, colonisation um, and what that leads then to. Um, how do you trust? How do you trust systems? How do you move forward with that? In Dion's post, she she talks about, you know, having to navigate refuge um, and being really happy that she was applied for accommodation and the local housing allowance was accepted. But when she went to view the property, um, she was met with passive aggressiveness, which she describes as uh, being a black woman coming in a in a you know in a middle class area to to rent a property and, and she wasn't given the property. When she reported that to a support worker, she was told she was being sensitive. Well I interpret that differently. You know that that's you know racial gaslighting there. That's um, you know, a microaggression, a microaggression that is discrimination. Um, but again, you are continually minimised. Your experiences are minimised, and you, you know, you, you, you end up questioning: Did that happen? Am I being sensitive? So the fight for the fight is real. It's as I say, as they compounded. Then you can be in 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 a homeless hostel, which I have worked in before donations are not representative you know you you are given products that are not appropriate for your hair for your skin you are given food that's not culturally appropriate so it's like I say it's like no one was ever expecting you how do you belong um and then as I say then all this gatekeeping it's just yeah it's relentless it really feels relentless and if we have all of that going on but now of course the thing to focus on is change. So if we shift focus from what the issues are to what change is needed and we think about providing meaningful, practical solutions that can address problems in accessing housing and perhaps local authorities are starting to or can build on ethnic specific interventions that develop support for people who are experiencing or at risk of homelessness as well that are actively anti-racist in practice. Amma, can we talk a bit more then about what some of those best practices are? How the housing system can be improved and what is a rights-based approach to housing? I think it's it it's having staff that are reflective of the community that you're serving that when you walk through the door you are representative the staff are representative of the people they're serving so they can have a better understanding of those communities I think it that's really really important I think it's really important to make sure that when we do do our policies and our practices and and our policies and our strategies, we take that into consideration. I mean, I know that with most policies you do an equality impact assessment, but really drill down and see what those impacts are likely to be and how those communities are likely to be affected. So that really needs to be important. And I think it's also about taking it out into communities, go to, you need to be going to the mosques, you need to be going to churches and not just your normal churches, but those community-based churches, finding community groups. So when I worked in Tower Hamlets, 
we had a request from a Somalian woman group because they didn't understand the allocations policy. I went out to talk to them. We need to be able to be doing those types of things of going to communities and talking to them and answering their questions to understand the process, to make them part of of the focus of what's being done and to hear what their frustrations are. Because I think the thing is the way the way that allocations of social housing works is is based on time. So the longer you've been here as a community, the more likely you are to be allocated something because you've been here longer. So if you've only just arrived in the last couple of years, and especially in London, depending on where you are living, you could be waiting some time before you, you get access to social housing. You know, and I think there's also that issue about the types of social housing that we we build and develop and have wasn't necessarily built for the types of households that ethnic minorities have, which tend to be larger, which tend to be multi-generational, you know. So understanding how communities are choosing to live is really important and making sure that that's representative in what's offered to them as well. But I think one of the key things is I'm, I'm a great believer in catching people when they're young. This should be weaved into the information that's given to children at school so they understand that process. I often think that accessing housing is something that's not talked about, you know, along with managing your finances, understanding what your rights are. No, your landlord can't just walk into your home. They have to give you notice. You know, you can read the agreement in terms of your contract and disagree with them and say, well, that doesn't work for me. Having giving people the tools and skills and confidence to challenge your landlord, to understand what your rights and responsibilities are as a tenant, but equally to understand what your rights are in terms of what your landlord should be doing, especially when it comes around condition of the property and repairs. You know, you'll often find that if you have an ethnic minority household, they're less likely to be getting repair work done. The landlord just ignores them sometimes. And them not un people not understanding what are my rights and actually I can challenge because they're fearful that they may lose their home. And I think it's a more systemic question of I it's quite funny when I look at stuff because technically I'm an immigrant. I wasn't born in this country. English is my second language. But then I'm quite privileged because of my background. I've had different opportunities and I've had different experiences. But I think what really interests me is when we talk to people and especially I think what really brought it to light is Windrush. And it's that question of people who have every right to be here are being questioned, are being othered. You know, you people losing their jobs, their livelihoods, access to health care, access to housing purely based on the colour of their skin and not actually based on you can't have been here for years accessing education, accessing the healthcare, accessing accommodation, and all of a sudden you're no longer eligible. And I know I worked in lots of local authorities at the time that said, actually, we're sort of not going to be evicting people because when we took, when they got this accommodation, they had every right to it. We're going to support them and help them to fight this as much as we can and see what it is they need to do. So I think there's that there has to be collective conscious decision about not being being open to people who look different and the question is what does it mean to be British because to be British doesn't just mean that you're white it means that you are black you are you are you were a multicultural ethnicity so just you cannot look at the at how somebody looks does not determine if they're British or not or whether they can access services or not and I think from a officer perspective 
you need to take that into consideration when you're doing things. And I think you have to do that. Does it make sense? Have you explored everything that makes sense before you blindly follow something? And I've watched where some people said, oh, did it? And that's well, actually, no, let's walk this back. Let's make it make sense. And that's not the only determining factor. So I think in terms of doing things better, I think we have to create an environment that isn't hostile, that doesn't determine your eligibility just based on the colour of your skin. You make a, an assumption you can't do that. And I think you have to be more open minded in terms of when you are making assessments and trying to understand how best to support people and how best to give them the right options that you are every option is valid you can't just be closed off from my perspective and I think it's about actually asking people rather than we do this paternalistic thing of telling people well these are your this is what you should be doing da, 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 why are you doing that it should actually be you know you do it as a joint exercise almost as if it's a co-production and sort of going right what is the outcomes that you're looking for what is it what is it you want and I think you need to start from there because you need to understand what somebody is looking for because someone can approach and I think this is one of the things that I know is definitely with the welfare reform act the impact has been greatest on ethnic minorities they have suffered the most because they were the ones that as a cohort were some of them were choosing to rent privately and could afford and choose where they lived because that was a choice they were able to make but with the welfare reform act now we've the local housing allowance being at the lowest 30th percentile that's no longer a choice so you're driving you you're giving people less choice in a very odd sort of way and driven them to the door of social housing and driven them to the door of the council saying this is the only option whereas before you would have found that these were families that were living quite happily paying for properties choosing so in in a sense some of that choice has been eroded thank you there's a lot there to think about as well and um if i could like maybe pull one point out about that idea of choice um, and doing things better. Michaela, from your perspective, what changes need to happen to make access in housing more just? Um, really interesting conversation and just, yeah, connecting the dots. Um, and it is about you know, going deeper than what can be done on the, you know, the 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 at the micro level. Just again, in thinking about language, just picking up on on some of the things there about, you know, who's least likely to engage. And I'd like to kind of reframe that in 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 not blaming those, you know, from black and global majority for not accessing services as I say that haven't been designed with them in mind and 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 that creates barriers and I'm just really conscious of 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 that in for anybody listening back in you know we as I say in in this podcast it's really highlighting something that's I say so so important and for me I feel that you know what's needed is an ecological systems approach um as we've heard that you know discrimination is not isolated um which is why we need to to frame housing disadvantage within that intersectional lens and um i'm not sure how familiar you you are with uh, the black equity organization uh, beo i really salute them in leading the way in the uk as the first preeminent civil rights organization who are tackling housing and another a number of other key pillars such as education um finances um within 
by by really looking to dismantle systemic racism at the the chrono system um and i think what needs to happen for 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 there to be you know housing uh justice to make housing more just you know it is that acknowledgement at the chrono system that there is systemic racism that it really is real um i'm an optimistic soul and i love a you know a quote and audrey lord reminds us you know that the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house so if things continue as they are, we're not going to see the change that's needed. It needs to come from, from government. There needs to be this recognition of systemic racism, how it intersects and interacts, uh, you know, and it, how it's, yeah, interconnected and interrelated. You know, there are so many elephants in the room, not just housing, it's it's health, it's education, it's criminal justice. Um, so I'm not saying that, change can't happen but all these things are just plastering over the issue in my view in what I see you know anti-racism in practice especially since you know George Floyd you know I, I'm often in rooms where I have conversations about racism I'm uncomfortable I'm, I'm comfortable calling it out but what I met with is then defensiveness white fragility so how do you move forward with that Anti-racism is about action over words. As I said before, it's not something that we can put an out of office on and say, OK, I'm not going to be black today. You know, we can't do that. So we can't escape, you know, the live reality. Um, and what I really commend BO and what they're doing, as I say, is really connecting the dots around the nuanced narrative. That is the black lived experience and how all these systems the interplay between these systems so you know change is needed within the chrono system and it's needed in each of these areas because uh, as we see we might get the housing but are we going to get the job to sustain it if our you know we know that you know black people are more likely to you know experience um poor mental health as a result of experiences of racism racism erodes mental health so if you can't get support for that how do you then manage uh, and to sustain your employment and your accommodation. What if what if then you have children and you're navigating education and your child is, you know, being excluded because they deem their behaviours to be, uh, you know, inappropriate, but really your child has got an underdiagnosed, um, you know, neurodiversity, but yet you go to to healthcare and they're telling you that, no, it's, it's behavioural, you know, it's because he comes from a single parent family. What do you do when all the systems are against you? So that's where wider change is needed to really affect, uh, yeah, to really affect change, because it's not just change needed within housing for, you know, for black people and people from the global majority, you know, it's across the, the life course and the lifespan and all the systems that we come into to contact with. Thank you so much, Michaela. We end every episode of the podcast with a recurring segment where I ask each guest the same question. What does home mean to you? Emma, what does home mean to you? I think home for me is a sense of security. It's also a feeling of joy and happiness, lots of laughter. It's a sense of being very clear and sure of who I am and sort of have a clear sense of 
of me, my family, what we stand for. So it's just that sense of I really know myself and it's 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 a comfort thing for me, being comfortable. Thank you. And I really love the idea of bringing in joy as well. And finally, Michaela, what does home mean to you? As a proud disruptor of uh, racial and gender inequalities, home is everything for me. So it's somewhere where I can put uh, some type of out of office on where I can go and recharge and restore, where I can really be my authentic self. And yeah, loving what Amma said around joy, you know, it certainly is a place of joy and gratitude. Uh, as somebody who previously spoke about not having a home and yeah, not having what I described as my, you know, having a tortoise shell. Yeah, home is home is everything. That brings us to the end of this episode. We would like to thank our guests, Michaela Queensborough and Amma Antwe-Yaboa for joining us and sharing their thoughts. For more information about our work, please visit meaningofhome.uk, follow us on Twitter at meaningofhomelu, remember to follow and share our podcast, and of course, thank you all for listening to The Meaning of Home. This podcast was created by The Home CDT. It was hosted by Sarah Christou, produced and edited by Dave Angel, and the music is by the Angel Brothers. All ideas expressed in this podcast are those of the individual. The Meaning of Home is brought to you by doctoral researchers at Loughborough University.